Hi, and welcome to the Sports Info Solutions Baseball Podcast. I'm Mark Simon. On this episode, we talk to the player with the hardest defensive job in baseball, Rocky center fielder Bretton Doyle. He shares his thoughts on what it's like to play in Coors Field. Our VP of Baseball, Bobby Scales, just watched the Rockies live and will share his thoughts as well. And we'll be joined by Dan Brooks, co-founder of Sabre Seminar, an awesome baseball event taking place in Chicago next month. Let's get to it. Rocky center fielder Brenton Doyle joins us. Brenton has one of the toughest jobs in baseball, playing center field in Coors Field, which is very difficult to do well based on the history of defensive run saved. But Brenton's been very good so far. And if you're uh, a Rocky, as I said, if you're doing positive defensive run save there, you're doing great. Brenton is a Division II baseball alum, Shepherd University. He's also won a minor league gold glove. Hey, Brenton. Hey, what's going on? So we like to always ask to kind of icebreaker things here. Going back to whether it be your Shepherd days or Kettle Run High or even before that, what's the first great defensive play that you remember making? I've had my fair share of like web gems in my high school days, but one of my favorite ones in college was a home run I robbed at, at home at Shepherd. It's kind of a, a big run saved. We have a chain link fence and I kind of climbed the fence. It was in the gap and it was a really sweet play. I got a couple pictures from it. That's uh, probably one of my favorite ones I can remember. Are the pictures of you like going over the fence and then falling down? Oh yeah, it's like it's like a little robe, like five or six pictures that just like show the summary of the catch pretty perfectly, and then it sees me, you know, tracking up the wall, and then my glove disappearing behind the wall, and then reaching back and bringing the ball back in. It's it's pretty cool. Very nice. So what was your reaction, especially comparing those fields to Coors Field when you went out to center at Coors for the first time and were like, I got to cover all this? Yeah, Coors Fields, you know, the gaps are huge. It's definitely a fun challenge for me. But our, our AAA park in Albuquerque are, is pretty similar. You know, I think it's a good stepping stool from that AAA field here at Coors. I mean, the gaps are huge and it plays very big. You really got to communicate well with your teammates beside you and it's been fun, though. Definitely fun. And then you go to these other ballparks and it feels tiny and it makes it even easier to play. What's your approach to Quirks? Like, what have they talked to you about in terms of, of trying to play out there? Just just knowing the field, knowing that you, you got to be pretty aggressive, especially in those big gaps. You know, and those the runners scoring position most of the time are going to end up scoring because you're playing so deep because you have to, you know, cover so much ground. So, I mean, I've had my fair share of conversations with guys like Charlie and KB a little bit in spring training to kind of warm me up to what to expect when I made it up here to Coors. And, you know, it's it's been a, a great fun challenge though so far. What was the Shepherd field dimensions? I don't know exactly what they were, but one one unique thing about Shepherd is there was a hill and deep center field. So that was a little bit of a challenge while I was there to get used to. But you know, it was cool, you know, getting used to that hill and then seeing opposing teams come in and kind of not used to it and we definitely steal some hits from guys, you know, falling down, not knowing where that hill was. <laughs> so in your very first game at Coors, you made a running diving catch on Emmanuel Rivera. Can you walk us through what that play was like? Yeah, I believe we had him shifted a little bit in the left center gap or straight up. And he kind of inside outed a, a, a pitch that Freeland threw pretty well and drove it to, to deep right center. And I got a pretty good jump on it. And you know, it was one of my first, I think it may have been my first game, of course. But yeah, I uh, made a really good jump, a good leap, and glad I, I uh, caught it. And it was, it was a cool little, you know, introduction to Coors Field. 
I would imagine that that made you a fan favorite pretty quickly too, right? For sure. StatCast has your outfield throw speed. They're taking the top 10% of your throws at 96 miles per hour. The outfielders who can throw the fastest in the majors at the time that we're talking. Brian Anderson, Acuna, you, Tatis. How come you're not a pitcher? You know, I flirted with pitching high school and a little bit in college, but I think my defense and my bat and my athleticism was uh, a little too good to be stuck on a mound. So how did you develop your arm strength? I don't know. I just, I've always had a pretty good arm growing up and it works, you know, pretty hard growing up with, you know, a lot of long tossing and just trying to build it up as much as I can. And it's just been something that's kind of always stuck with me. I've never really had any arm problems, knock on wood. So, I mean, my arm's been healthy most of my life and I've been able to build it up to where it is today. Did you know the stat about Anderson, Acuna, you and Tatis? I knew a couple of them. I knew Acuna is definitely up there and Tatis, but yeah, I haven't looked too much into it, but it's definitely some pretty good company. Who did you pattern your defensive game after in terms of watching major leagues as a kid? I don't know. I mean, growing up, outfielders, especially, you know, Adam Jones was really fun to watch when he was with the Orioles. Andrew McCutcheon, of course, his Pittsburgh Pirates days, you know, patrolling PNC Park and center field. It's always pretty iconic. But, I mean, when I was younger growing up, I was an infielder. I didn't move to outfield till I got to high school. So growing up, it was, it was, I, was, I was a big Nashville fan. So watching the defense of like Ryan Zimmerman and stuff and um, just how he always handled the game each and every day and played hard and a humble guy. I always like to try to, you know, model my game after that, you know, not, not showboating too much. Just treating the game the right way and it'll treat you back well terrific player who had a great arm when he was healthy playing third base as well i want to talk about two throws one was he nailed brian reynolds at the plate do you remember that one yeah i was a big part of the game bases loaded i saw that ball and get hit up to me and i was i was i was kind of anticipating wanting the ball there um wanting to be able to do a little catch and throw him out and you know i just lined up perfectly got a good jump stay behind it really well to get some good momentum thrown home and one of, the, one of the top moments of my uh, defensive day so far up here. One of the, uh, the, we talked to Adam Duval, and one of the things he talked about was approaching balls to put himself in position to make throws. What would you say that you've, that you've done with regards to that? Getting yourself in a good position to uh, make a strong, good throw to any base is pretty important. You know, you, got, you can't, you know, play on your heels. You got you to gotta stay, work behind the ball, and get a good little run start, and that's how you get the, the, the best efficiency out of your throws as you can. So yeah, a very important part of a defense. Who was instrumental in teaching you all of the things that have made you an out- a good outfielder? I don't know. I mean, I, growing up, I was pretty self-taught. I mean, I kind of just, you know, learned by example of myself. I never really got with any like specific outfield coaches or anything, you know, just, just practicing hard in BP, taking a lot of good reps of, you know, working on my jumps and, and working on my reads and BP and no, growing up in in high school and college and it's kind of just evolved me to where I am today. Yeah. Okay. So what's, what's your BP routine? So it depends on how many groups we have, of course, but early in BP, I'll normally get with Ron Gideon, our first base coach, and he'll hit me some fungos and I'll make some throws to some bags. And then I don't try to wear myself too much in BP just because we know we have a game coming up. So for a couple rounds, whatever group I'm not hitting in, I'll just work on my first, you know, quick couple steps. I won't like track a ball fully. I'll just work on my jumps. And then for a round, I'll probably track every ball I can and try to get back in position and just for a whole round, just work on tracking balls down. 
when you were in Senway, did you did you take a good look at everything to try and figure out how the heck you were going to defend it? Yeah, Fenway was probably one of the coolest, you know, ballpark experiences I've, I've ever had. But yeah, uh, actually in Fenway, we didn't really take too much BP on the field. So I think the first day was the day I really, you know, kind of just threw balls off the wall and tried to, you know, get familiar with, you know, how many steps I have until like I'm in a deep corner or that, you know, shallow kind of where their bullpen is, that waist length wall is, you know, because you got to be familiar with those or else they'll sneak up on you. It was really cool to have that catch when Gomber was pitching. The Fenway is a pretty cool crowd to have them cheer for you as an opposing player after a catch like that's a pretty cool feeling. You you got a hand from the crowd in the, in the bleachers? Yeah. Nice. So I want to give props to one of your teammates for a play that involved you. This was another throw. It was one that was clocked at 99 miles per hour. And we actually gave, we created an award for it. We called it the tag of the week for Elias Diaz, the catcher. You know what play I'm talking about? Yeah, at Fenway? I think it was there, yeah. Yeah, that was a great, great tag by Diaz. We were pretty pumped up when we saw each other in the dugout. It was up the line, the throw was up the line just a little bit, but it was close enough to the plate where he was able to, uh, I think it was Verdugo running to tag Verdugo out. So have, have there been any other interesting ballparks that you've played in? Each ballpark's pretty unique in its own way. Fenway with the, all the different services and all the different angles is probably the one where, you know, you had to get familiar with the most, especially with the Green Monster and having to help the left fielder out. Cool. Last question. What are you, I know that, you know, the offensive game has come a little slower for you so far. What are you looking to improve upon in your game as you're moving forward to the all-star break and then through the rest of the season? Well, I'm just trying to make my swing as efficient as I can. You know, pitching is a lot better up here to to be as efficient as you can with your swing path and, and everything is pretty important. And I'm just going to keep working with coaches, working with the craft in the batting cage and and get to where I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable and, and, you know, consistently getting a lot more hits and barrels. So. Cool. Brenton Doyle, Rocky center fielder, having a very good year defensively so far. Thank you for joining us. Right on. We're joined by SIS VP of Baseball, Bobby Scales, who's also one of the radio voices for the Detroit Tigers. Hey, Bobby. Hi, Mark. Justin, great to be back on with you guys. We're looking forward to this, and we know that looking back, you just saw Bretton Doyle this past weekend, Rockies Tigers series. You saw him play center field in Coors Field, very difficult place to play. He's excelling there. What were your takeaways from watching him in person? I was very impressed. Bretton Doyle looks the part of a, of a major league center fielder. I mean, he's, he's big, he's physical, he's lean, 6'2", 200 pounds. I mean, you can't, that's that's prototypical major league center fielder moves very well i thought he did a very nice job of, of moving between pitches a lot of times with the young outfielders you see guys they don't necessarily play the count properly they don't move in counts they don't take command of the outfield the center fielder should you know either moving guys with them or pushing guys or, or or what have you and he was playing between two established veteran major league players and randall grichick and left and, and chris bryant right and he had no no qualms about moving those guys around and and push them here, push them there, or what have you. So defensively, he's got a really bright future. I, I, like I said, I love the way he moved. Didn't have a chance to throw during the series that I that I was just there in, in Denver for. But uh, you know, in, in listening to your interview and going back and watching a little video, tremendous arm, accurate arm too. So there's a very good defensive package that will obviously aid the Rockies and run prevention for years to come. How difficult is it to play center field in course? It's it's extremely difficult, exceedingly difficult for a lot of reasons, right? Let's just start with the obvious. You're you're at significant altitude. You're very close to being literally a mile high in the air. And so the effect that that has on the ball in flight, 
and then the the speed at which it travels, even on the ground. I mean, the balls are just they just they they hit harder, they get on you quicker. It's a real thing. Secondly, because of that, they built the ballpark to have a bigger. I mean, it's three forty seven down the left field line, it's three fifty down the right field line, it's four hundred, I believe, in twelve feet in center field, and the gaps are or it's four hundred and twenty feet to one gap that's a little bit deeper than this than center field out. It, it, just to the left, if you're looking at the field from uh, the home plate view, just to the left of center field, you have big walls there. But literally by acreage, it is the largest outfield in the major league. So you have to have dynamic outfielders, at least one in the center of the, of the park that can control a lot of ground because because of, of just the size of the of the, the dimensions of course field and obviously the lightness and thinness of the air at altitude there in Denver. He briefly alluded to it, and you've experienced it personally. It's helped for him by the fact that he can play AAA in Albuquerque? Uh, yes. And so the funny part about Albuquerque, New Mexico, is is actually higher elevation-wise, I believe. Uh, you know, somebody will certainly, I'll probably get a, a, a tweet or something on this, but it's, it's, it's right there. It's at altitude, even if it's not higher. It's right there at altitude as well with Denver. And so, and the dimensions are very similar. Well, I believe it's 420 to center field down to that ballpark where the Albuquerque, the, the Colorado Rockies AAA affiliate is. And so it's it's similar. I mean, it's literally similar in most ways. Big down the lines, big in center field. The, the gaps are very big um, and it's at altitude. So having guys come through that system and and get their you know, very important reps in AAA in a ballpark that looks very similar to the one you're going to play in in the major leagues is, is critical to their development. I think it was a very good move. Now, they were in Colorado Springs previously, which made sense for a lot of reasons, but they were... You know, having finding another ballpark that that's going to play very similar for those outfielders was, and, and certainly that wasn't a main consideration. But I'm sure there was some thought given to that when they decided they were going to move to Albuquerque. But it can't do anything but help guys get acclimated uh, or flatten out the learning curve when they get to course field. The Rockies' record is somewhat unfortunate because they have three terrific defenders in Doyle. Ezekiel Tovar at short and Ryan McMahon at third base. And I know that you've saw and liked. The other guys too. So just your takeaways on those two guys. That left side of that infield is tremendous. I mean, Tovar, my goodness, I they <laughs> he is going to be a really, really nice player for a number of years for that for that Rockies team. Just having the ability to watch him for the last three ga- that games. There's there's no play on the infield he didn't make. The 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 one coming in, the chopper coming in with a good runner. Javi Baez chopped the ball, topped the ball to him. A shortstop came in, and uh, Javi still runs well down the line. He. He threw him out, I won't say easily, but it made a very difficult play look easy. Backhanded the ball in the hole, planted, stuck his foot in the ground and threw. Chopper up the middle, spin throw up the middle. He he fielded the ball. Now, it was, it was a left-handed shift as much as you can shift now, but he fielded the ball. He was 15, 20 feet on the other side of the second base bag, spun and throw. Went over his shoulder, made a nice nice running catch on a pop-up that you know could have most shortstops allow that to fall. Or not allow to fall, but, but they, don't, they don't get to it. I mean, he made every play you can make, including all the routine ones. In a three-game series, and it, with him also too, with the bat, the bat plays as well. He hit a lot of good pitches. Used all parts of the field. Hit a full side home run. Hit a double in a gap to right center field. The, there's some swing and miss there, and some chase. I think those are things that will tighten up for him as he matures as a major league hitter. But there is a really nice package to like with Tovar and Ryan McMahon. Same thing. I mean, he's more of a veteran player, but he made some really nice plays at third base. Uh, again, backhand down the line, strong arm. Um, spinning to his left in the six hole. Very impressive. Very impressive left side of that defense and, and center fielder as well for that Rockies team. Yeah, and I think some I think you'll see some of this reflected in the Fielding Bible Awards down the line. Now the Rockies 
admittedly are a suffering team right now in a baseball sense. Uh, at the time that we're talking, they're 20 games under 500, and this is going to be a rough season for them. You experienced some of this with the Pirates, and there's someone that you worked with that you saw get rewarded this week for sticking through the bad times and now starting to see better times, both for himself and his team, and that's Mitch Keller. And I just wanted you to speak to his all-star selection. No, I was so happy to see that. When it came out and Mitch Keller made an all-star team, um, really, really excited for him. I, you know, I, I joined the Pittsburgh Pirates as their field coordinator in 2018, and Mitch was just rounding out his development. Uh, he started the year in Double A, got, got elevated to Triple A that year, I believe, and then made his debut in the big leagues. and And uh, it didn't go great. Not just this, the debut, but this first couple of seasons, he got knocked around. I mean, he got whacked around pretty good. There was some up down there. Sit, got sent back to the minor leagues on a couple of occasions. He's figured it out, and and it's and it's credit to the regime that was there that brought me in. I had nothing to do with it, but you know there were guys there uh, that that helped in his development, and also credit to the guys who picked up and, and ran with the development when he got there. They helped take him to another level. So uh, when a guy does, when he has to, you know, a path like that, and it's and it's not look, development is not linear. Improvement is not linear. Um, there's going to be setbacks. It could have been very easy for Mitch to get down himself, and we've seen this with players, not just not just pitchers, but position players as well. You know they're they're supposed to be a guy, and then they, it doesn't work out, and they get sent up and down, and they, and they kind of pack it in, and it, they end up getting a little bit of major league service time here or there, and they don't ever end up being the, the guy they could have been or should have been. Mitch Keller is on his way to being that guy, and it's taking him a minute, and and I'm I'm very excited for him, I'm happy for him, and I'm I'm happy for all the people who had a hand in his development to make him a major league all star. He's earned every bit of it. He's been absolutely tremendous this year. I think as we sit today, he's second in the league in strikeouts, or at least in the National League. So again, he has made some huge strides and and good for him. And you'll see that a fair amount in baseball. You'll see guys uh, struggle on bad teams for a while, and then they figure it out. The team gets better. They turn a corner. The team does as well. Bobby Scales, thank you for joining us. We look forward to talking to you in the future. Thank you, Mark. Always a pleasure. And we're joined by Dan Brooks. Dan's a professor, the creator of brooksbaseball.net, and a co-founder of Saber Seminar. Saber Seminar, Saber Metrics, Scouting, and the Science of Baseball, a weekend seminar for the benefit of the Alliance to Cure, puts you up close with some of baseball's top coaches, statisticians, scouts, doctors, and scientists. It's a great event. I think I've been there three times. This year, if you're in Chicago, August 12th and 13th, I highly recommend it. It'll be held at Illinois Tech, and Sports Info Solutions will be there presenting. Hey, Dan, how's it going? It's it's going great. How are you? We're good. And we appreciate that Saber Seminar is, in fact, back and very much looking forward to seeing you and hearing from the many speakers on August 12th and 13th. This is a great event for students, people that aspire to work in baseball. What are some of the highlights going to be for this year's event? You know, we have a bunch of highlights this year. And yeah, it has been a long four years. You know, there was something going on over the last couple of years that made it maybe not the best time to host a many hundred person in-person gathering, but but we're back now. So as he said, this year's event is in Chicago, which is a first for us. We have three MLB teams with, with speakers presenting at the event. So the White Sox, the Cubs, and the Brewers, which will be fantastic. All three of you are in, in town, or at least, you know, have folks in town that weekend. And then apart from that, we have 40 other presentations with, you know, sort of spanning I would say all aspects of, of baseball analysis, some which are, I would say, you know, much more sort of like basic physics, 
all the way up to, you know, multi-level modeling of baseball statistics. So yeah, we, we have, we have 40 presentations. It's going to be a lot, but it'll be fun. That's going to be great. So I was thinking back to the past and it always felt like at this event that when you got people from teams to speak, they opened up a little bit more. And I'm thinking of people like Bobby Valentine, John Farrell, Ben Charrington, and also people that at the time weren't working for teams that went on to work for teams like Brian Bannister and Nate Fryman. What are some of the more memorable things that have come up from the non-academic side at the conference? Well, I always told people that 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 they should share with us some baseball wisdom, but not baseball intelligence. You know, so I don't expect anybody to get up there and tell us like their advanced scouting report for the pitcher they're facing that day, or you know, tell us their new model for you know defensive valuation or something like that. Because you know, I mean, teams and and people inside the game have secrets and and things they don't want to tell you. But I think if you ask them to tell you, you know, pieces of wisdom, things that they've sort of thought were interesting or changes in the game that they've observed or ways that analytics have helped them improve as players or change the way that they've coached. I always thought that that was sort of a, a, a sort of clearer path to getting those pieces of insight that, that sort of translated well into a conversation between those folks in our audience. But we've been really lucky to have some absolutely amazing speakers who have told us, I think, some incredible things about, you know, the game and and how they've interacted. And this year, one of those featured speakers will be Ethan Katz, the pitching coach from the White Sox, right? Yes. Who, as best I can tell, has had a really interesting career. I think started off as like a high school pitching coach. I mean, he obviously had a a a life in baseball before being a high school pitching coach. But 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 yeah, I I think it will be super interesting to hear him talk about you know his uh, evolution throughout his career and and how you know he interacts with sort of players, baseball, and and data. Sure, cool. That's going to be a lot of fun. Looking forward to to hearing from him. Yeah, I always felt like, as I said, the John Farrells and the Bobby Valentines when it was held in Boston always would would open up a little bit more. And I look forward to someone that I think is is a little on the younger side and analytically inclined being able to do that. Can you explain what people who have presented and networked at this event have gone on to do? Yeah. So, you know, at, at Sabre Seminar 2, which was, gosh, over 10 years ago now, we really made a focus of the event be student presentations. So people who maybe hadn't talked about their baseball work before, and, and student pretty broadly conceived, right? So we had graduate students and, and people like that. But but folks who hadn't who hadn't who hadn't taught about their baseball work or their baseball thoughts. They didn't have that existing audience. And we've had a number of people throughout the years go on. I think, gosh, there's two or three folks who have gone on to be assistant GM at various organizations, but gave their first presentation at Sabre Seminar. And then, you know, a variety of people who are, you know, director of R&D or are working in analytics shops throughout MLB and other sports, actually. And, you know, we take maybe 0.00001% of that credit. I mean, we've just, again, been really lucky to have super smart and great communicators come present at Sabre Seminar. You know, 
the 0.0001% credit we take is just allowing those people to shine, right? That's why we have 40 presentations this year, because we want to give more people that opportunity to get out in front of an audience that you know might not have had that opportunity in the past and can tell us about something that might be the next big thing in baseball. So Cool. That, that all sounds great. Explain the charitable component, because you've helped raise over a quarter of a million dollars for charity. Yeah. So Sabre Seminar, since it has, since it's been going on, and I, this, although this won't be year 10, because again, had that funny break due to COVID, like everybody else, but, but this I think is, is conference number 10. So every penny that we have raised, either through sponsorships or through ticket sales, has either gone to directly paying for costs of the event, right? food for the event costs money or whatever, or charity. And so every year we donate tens of thousands of dollars to charity. We've also started funding our own sponsorship or scholarship programs where we try to bring in, you know, more diverse set of speakers, try to give them a little bit of a of a leg up trying to get into the baseball analytics community, you know, which is a, a cause that that we feel pretty passionate about, but yeah, we, we've donated, you know, gosh, well over $250,000 to charity over the last 10 years. And I I think it's one of the things that quite frankly, gives folks the kind of positive energy they get at the event, right? Cause they know it is not a, they know it's not a, a money-making opportunity for anyone really. It's just a, opportunity for everybody to get together, meet up with good friends, you know, talk about a game they love, you know, talk about their their newest baseball research and contribute positively to the world. And let's close by explaining how people can sign up to attend. Sure. So if you go to saberseminar.com and that's S A B E R seminar S E M seminar. So Saber Seminar you can go and click a link to view our current speaker list. And as I said, we have 40 presentations on the schedule. Not all of those people have been announced yet. And there's a link there where you can purchase tickets. Again, your your ticket purchase is a donation to charity. So, you know, every, every penny that we raise out of your ticket sales is a donation to charity. And you can go right on saberseminar.com. Click the tickets link and come join us in Chicago. That'll be awesome. Looking forward to it. Dan Brooks, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And that wraps up this episode. You can find all our work at sportsinfosolutions.com. You can follow us on Twitter at SIS underscore baseball, myself at Mark A. Simon Says, and Bobby Scales at Bobby underscore Scales. For Brenton Doyle, Bobby Scales, Dan Brooks, and our producer Justin Stein, I'm Mark Simon. Thank you for listening to the Sports Info Solutions Baseball Podcast. Thank you for tuning in to the SIS Baseball Podcast. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. If you have any questions, email the show at mark at sportsinfosolutions.com or tweet us at sportsinfo underscore SIS.